Amen. His grace is truly amazing. Thank you for that. Let's turn to the Bible now in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through uh, 13. We'll see if we can get to 13 today. Let's begin 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to pick up in verses 1 through 3. We've been going through a series of this chapter. I, I don't normally spend as much time in such a small amount of verses. Usually, we're moving pretty fast through the chapters, but there is just so much truth packed into this text that, as I mentioned before, we cannot do it justice by just skimming through it. So, turned it into a three-part series called Blameless. Let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 6. We then, as workers together with him, him being Christ, beseech you that ye also receive not the grace of God in vain. Just saying about God's grace, how God is so good to us. Uh, Receiving God's grace in vain means receiving it in a manner by not fulfilling the purpose of it. God gave us grace, not so that we can live however we want. God was not good to us so that we can continue in our sins. God did not say, I'm going to uh, to give you blessings. I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit. I'm going to empower you uh, with the dwelling of the Spirit, not so we can be selfish. God gave us these blessings so that others may also gain the blessing of knowing Christ. Verse 2, for he saith, I have heard that thee, heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation, have I succored, comforted thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God is saving people every day. Every day is a day of salvation for God. Every day is a day to come back to God. Every day is a day to be renewed in your walk with Christ. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next month. Why are you waiting till next year? Today is the day. It was the day 2,000 years ago when this book is written, and it's the day today. Verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. And then we have a list from verses 4 and on of all the areas that God asks Christians to be blameless in. And there is so much that God calls on us to be blameless in. There are so many areas that we can fall, so many areas that we can cause others to fall. And so this text lists them and reminds us as Christians the weight of responsibility on our shoulders to not bring shame to God's kingdom. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're told the list of qualifications for a spiritual leader, for a pastor. The Bible refers to in that chapter a bishop. Other texts refer to the man as an elder. Others refer to them as an under-shepherd or the pastor. But it's all the same individual, elder, bishop, pastor, all referring to the man that God has placed as a servant leader in God's church. And you know, one of the first things that God mentions when he talks about the qualifications of a leader, we're told, in fact, in verse 2, well, verse 1 gives us the first one. It says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, I think that a qualification is the man has to desire to be a pastor. But verse 2 right away says, a bishop then must be blameless, right away. Because how can the church, how can the people of God be blameless if the leaders of God's people are living in blame, living in shame. You can say, well, you know what? That's not my responsibility. Uh, I'm doing this right. What the pastor does, you know, what the pastors and their wives and their children do, that doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. (laughs) 
Because when the leadership of the church is bringing blame on the church, the community sees that. The church sees that. And you're partaking in the blame, which is why God tells the spiritual leaders in the church, the pastors, the elders, the bishops, same people. He says, if there's someone in the church bringing shame into God's church, public, open, unrepentant sin, it is the responsibility of the blameless leaders of the church to address these individuals that are bringing shame and blame into the church. It's called church discipline. It has to happen because if it's not addressed, then you'll find blame on top of blame, shame on top of shame, being cast on God's people, and the great commission to bring the truth to the lost will fail because the lost will only see your shame. Pointing fingers of blame. How can leadership who are living in blame address others in blame? They can't, which is why it's so imperative that churches have brought in, have accepted, have embraced servant leaders. We're not saying perfect because no man is perfect, but servant leaders who are not living in open shame, open blame. And if they are, they need to be let go. So God's church can also live holy, just, without blame before the community. There are a lot of people right now, I believe, looking for truth. If they're looking for truth, why aren't they looking in the church? Because the church claims to have the truth. Why are they not looking? Because the church claims to have it but doesn't live it. And most people aren't that stupid, right? Most people outside the church aren't dumb enough to go to a church that says one thing and does something different. They're not dumb. They're looking for a church that says something and acts on what they say. Not a whole lot of those running around lately, are they? I have no church in mind. I'm just stating it's a sad state of affairs when God's people start contradicting God's word to not offend the world. I I am not looking as a pastor to offend anyone unnecessarily. I'm not even looking to offend necessarily. But look, I'm not going to change truth so people aren't offended. I'm not going to be silent on truth so someone feels good about their sin. I'm not going to track them down and start calling them out. That's unnecessary. But nor am I going to change what is preached and taught and lived here so that people out there think that we're good with them and what they do. No, because if we're good with what they do, then what's different about us and them? You see, the world doesn't want there to be a difference. The world wants to look at the church and say, hey, you disagree with us. We have a problem with that. Why don't you agree? There should not be a difference. The world says, you live differently than us. That's a problem. We want you to live the same way as us. Why is there a difference? That's the point. Otherwise, why are we a church? I'm not saying be different for the sake of difference. I'm saying if we follow God, there ought to be a difference. And when the community is, is at the point where they recognize when an individual, when a family, when a father, a mother, a child, son, daughter, when they realize, you know what, what I'm doing isn't working, I need something different, they're going to look for a church that's different. You know, not in a weird way, right? Not different in the way of we got to do everything different so we stand out, right? Everyone has a big Bible and everyone, you know, everyone wears the hat and the t-shirt that, that has the, the Christian theme on it. And everyone, you know, looks exactly the same. So we, we're different because we all follow some weird uh, cultish uh, belief system. No, we're different because our belief system is biblical 
and we don't change it for the world. That's enough. That's enough difference right there. Now, if they're not looking for any difference, they won't come here, and they'll be mad that we are different. But you know what? The one's looking. This is where they'll find it. They'll find the difference here at a church like this that's not afraid to be different. But there's a lot of Christians and a lot of spiritual leaders that are bringing blame on God's truth, bringing blame on God's church, bringing blame on the ministry because they're too scared to be different. It frightens them. It frightens them to cause someone offense. It frightens them to be called a name. A name. I mean, no one's out to get you. No one's attacking your family. No one's slashing your tires. These days, a name cast upon you on social media by someone you don't even know is enough to shut up most Christians. Strangers calling you names can keep you from following truth. That's a sad place to be for the church. And so now let's skip to verse 8. By honor, we need to be blameless by honor, by dishonor. We need to be blameless by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, verse 9. Blameless as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live. Blameless as chastened and not killed. Blameless, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Blameless as poor, yet making many rich. Blameless as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. When I see these three verses, I see interaction with the world. Uh, When I saw the previous verses, last time we were together speaking on this, I saw an interaction in the way we love God, blameless with our heart, mind, and soul. I saw in the first part of this text, blameless in how we handled hardships, persecution, and and just the, the general chaos of the world. So we began this text by being blameless through hard times. We continued this text by being blameless in the way that we love God. And now we're finishing this portion of Scripture by being blameless in our interaction with the world. Being blameless in how the world sees us and what we do and do not change because of the world. And so let's begin. I see three things. Examined by the world, forgotten by the world, and wounded by the world. And so let's begin in verse 8. Examined by the world, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true. That first phrase, honor and dishonor, is not how God sees us. It's how the world sees us. Sometimes the world will look at the church and say, you know what? You've got a lot of honor. The way you handle yourself, what you do, we, we honor that. We respect that. Uh, there are people in the world who will say, I don't agree. I, I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe that the Bible is accurate. I, I don't think that what you guys do, are, are doing when you sing means anything. But, hey, I can respect your belief system. There are some that will say that. And then there are others who will say, you guys are a bunch of crazy, no good, rotten liars, and you're doing the community harm. Dishonor. In the same town, the same exact church and the same Christian can bring both honor and dishonor, not because you act differently, but because of the way they perceive what you do. This text is not saying be blameless when God honors you and be blameless when the world dishonors you. This text is saying when the world honors you, don't let it go to your head. Be blameless. Stay humble. Don't make it about you. Because how many churches, when they do something good and the community pats them on the back, all of a sudden it's like, all right, God, I got it from here. Push God to the side. And now everything you're doing is all about you, all about numbers, all about the brand, right, the brand of the church. 
and you're wearing the brand now. You're not really representing Christ. You're representing the brand to the community. No, you are now blame. You are, you, there is cause to blame in honor. <laughs> like you did something good, people recognize it. Now you're bringing shame through that good. And then there are those churches who bring dishonor, not because they do the wrong thing, but because they do the right thing. Because they love God, because they love truth, the community looks at you, points a finger, and says, how dare you disagree with us? Dishonor, shame upon you, shame upon your family, shame upon your church. You bigots, how dare you think that? How dare you say that? How dare you live that? Dishonor, and a lot of churches don't know how to handle dishonor too well. And they bring blame by returning the attack. Who are you to talk? You bunch of, and you fill in the blank of what that pastor might say from the pulpit to the community and about the community. What Christians might say about those and to those who disagree with truth. And the names and the words that come out of the mouths of believers and, dare I say, spiritual leaders. You know why? Because it's hard to be attacked and are defense mechanism is automatically, humanly speaking, automatically, we want to return the attack. That's the flesh. And there's a lot of Christians who cannot remain in the spirit when they're being attacked. They're being attacked, especially by loved ones at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they start attacking your church and your family and your belief system. Oh, man, you throw it right back at them. Thanksgiving was not too enjoyable when it was just chaos and name-calling. Can we be gracious when we've been attacked? You know what the Bible says in Proverbs? A soft answer turns away wrath. That's not a promise. It's not a guarantee, but it sure is a wise saying that when people attack you, the best thing you can do is return with a soft answer. Hey, you know what? I recognize we disagree. I love you anyways. I don't have to agree with you to love you. I do love you. God loves you. And yes, we do disagree. But you know what? I agree with the Bible. And that's why we disagree. Not because I hate you. Not because I dislike you, but because my truth is Scripture. And so I see letter A, under, examined by the world. When God's truth is viewed through the world's philosophy, those who follow it will be labeled liars. Verse uh, 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report, good report, as deceivers and yet true. See the last part, deceivers? Look, if you're going to follow the Bible, be prepared. Don't be shocked. People will call you a liar. They will say, you are a liar, you are a deceiver, following a book of lies and deceptions. If that has not been thrown your way yet, it will if you live this book long enough. By strangers, by friends, by family, by your community, by people you've never met before, people will call you a liar for following this book. God warns us of that. God sets us up to understand that is what will happen if we follow truth. Are you ready for that? You know what's really hard? It's really hard to be surrounded by people who don't like you, especially when those people are your same age and especially when you are young. My heart breaks for teenagers. It is such a difficult time of life. Middle school to high school is so hard because teenagers are trying to struggle with this idea of who am I? They, they're, they're, they're working through that. They don't really know yet, a lot of them. They're working through that. And so a lot of teenagers, because they don't know who they are, they, they define who they are, can you guess, by what other people say. 
Well, they say I'm really pretty, so that must be true. They say I'm really talented, that must be true. They say I'm athletic, they say I'm smart, that must be true. So many teenagers are defining themselves by what their friends say because they don't have the self-confidence, they don't have the courage, they don't have the maturity, the age, the experience to recognize we are not who people say we are. People don't know what's going on inside here. People don't know what's going on inside here especially other teenagers who themselves are struggling. They're not the best people to define who you are. And yet teenagers, lack of experience, lack of maturity, don't recognize that. And so they are literally defining themselves by their peers. Now consider this, adults. It's been a long time for some of us. We've forgotten this. Can you remember back when you were a teenager how important it was to be accepted? Can you remember how important it was to, to feel confident. Now, in today's culture, a Christian teenager surrounded even by other Christian teenagers who agrees with the Bible is most assuredly going to be attacked for it. It's most definitely going to be beaten into submission. It's hard enough being a teenager. It's really hard to be a teenager when you define yourself by what other people say and everything they say about you is bad. <laughs> You're horrible, you're hateful, you're a liar, you're a bigot, you're, hobo, you're homophobic, you're transphobic, whatever, phobia, right? They, they cast all these things at the teenagers. Are we shocked when teenagers start to wonder, maybe I am the problem? Maybe I need to change my truth because I am sick and tired of my friends calling me names. I'm sick and tired of my, uh, my fellow students, you know, my, my classmates, my teammates calling me names. It's hard for a teenager. It's harder when the teenager doesn't know who they are. It's even harder when they're told who they are by people who disagree with truth. Now, parents, you may say, well, what do we do from here then? Help your teenager recognize they're not defined by what other people say. Your teenager, and by the way, I say teens, but this is a problem for young adults as well, right? <laughs> it's not, it doesn't end it. You don't turn 18 and all of a sudden everything fits into place. It's a problem for young adults. It's a problem for middle-aged problem for the elderly. We all can struggle with this. Recognize you're not defined by what other people say. You are defined by God. And what does God say? Let's look here. In verse 8, it says at the end of verse 8, the world may call you a deceiver, and yet what does God say about you? True. You're not a deceiver. If you're living truth, you are in truth. You see, we're defined by what God says about us, not the world. One of the best things you can do for your teenager is assist them in drawing closer to God. Let me explain. Because the closer they are to God, the louder they hear him. And the louder they hear God, the less they hear people and what other people say about them. The further they are from God and the closer they get to the world, the louder the world, and I can tell you what the world is yelling at them is not helping them. Help your teenager get closer to God, and God will be louder, and they'll start divining themselves by God and his truth, not the world. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I mean, that sounds easy. How do you help a teenager get closer to God? I mean, there's so many messages you could put in there, so any series of messages. Let me break it down for you. Teenager, child, spouse, friend, what does the Bible say? Love. Love. 
It is more clear, more evident today than it's ever been. The world says we are the lovers. Christians are the haters. They, 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 I think they've always thought that. They have no problem actually stating that now. Let me ask you a question. What does your child believe? Does your child believe that Christians are the haters? Because if they do believe that, you've lost them. The moment your child thinks the church hates, Christians hate, God hates, wave goodbye and say, I wish you the best. You've lost them. Christian families, Christian parents, Christian churches, the reason the world can say that is because a lot of them do. They hate. It's evidenced by what they say, evidenced by what they do, how they treat people, and so the world can say it, and it sticks. And kids and teenagers look at the church and say, you know what, it's right, they do hate. Like, I see the pastor, he's screaming, yelling, spitting. He's like, it's all over the place. And every time people talk about the world, it's so hateful. Like, the world's right. Christians are hateful. I want to be with the lovers. And so these kids join the world thinking they've joined the lovers. <laughs> now, if we're old enough and mature enough, we know the truth. The problem is we don't show the truth for kids who aren't old enough to see it. So, again, there's a series of things that could be said, a series of messages, a conference of messages on how to help children draw closer to God. But I'm telling you right now, love and when the kids hear from the world, the, the, the church hates, they'll say, you know what? I'm in the church. My church doesn't hate. <laughs> I mean, my parents are Christians. They don't hate. When they see that, they'll recognize the world doesn't know what they're talking about. And now they say, okay, I'm in the church. The church loves. I'm with my parents, Christians. They love. Surrounded by Christians who love. The world claims they love, but I've seen the love of the church. I'm not saying they won't still go to the world. It's a whole lot less likely. You know what the Bible says? Apart from love, first and greatest commandment, the Bible says to be the salt and light. Parents, adults, family, of children, of others. You want to help someone? Love. And secondly, be the light. Live what you preach, which is what we're talking about this morning. Because when you live what you preach attached to love, you are doing the best you can, aside from attaching prayer to helping the people you love come to God. But let's be a little transparent. How many of us grew up in churches, didn't love, and didn't live the truth? Quite a few, right? Quite a few of us did. And because of that, this generation and the last few generations have been running from God, running away. The world is going to call us liars. Why? Because we follow the truth. Accept that. I'd rather the world call me a liar for following the truth than the world call me a liar for preaching the truth and not following it. At least call me a liar for something I'm actually doing. <laughs> the reason you call me a liar is because you disagree with my truth, not because I preach it and don't live it. You see, because the truth is, for some Christians, you are liars. Because you say one thing and do something completely different, and now the, the, the statement you're a liar sticks. Let the statement itself be a lie because you are living truth. Let it be. When our beliefs contradict the culture around us, our actions will be analyzed. Right? If you stand out, where's everyone looking? At you. If you do something different, everyone's going to be looking at you. The community will look at you and look at me because we're different. 
If we say something different, all eyes will shift to us. All ears will shift to us. And let me tell you, most of the world will not look to you and say, oh, finally, truth, I've been looking for it. Please give it to me. No, when you say something different, most of the world will look to you and say, all right, let's listen to every word they say and attack the moment they, they misspeak. Attack the moment they misstep. The moment they do something different than what they say, bam, we're on them. It's over. We're going to wipe them out. I mean, it's bad enough when the world believes that what we think and believe is a lie. It's bad enough when they think that. It's really bad when they think that what we believe is a lie and we don't follow it. We're not bringing glory to God. We're bringing blame upon God's church. You will be analyzed, Christian. If you have the boldness to speak truth, then you better have the courage and wisdom to follow it because people will be watching you. I see in verse 8, honor and dishonor, evil report, and good report as deceivers and yet true. That evil report, that good report, again, attached to the world and how the world sees you. They're going to call upon you evil report and call lies upon you and claim you are doing things you are not. They will misspeak about you. They will falsely accuse you as they did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And will you be blameless when they falsely accuse you? And will you be humble and blameless when they correctly say, you know what, we don't agree with what you're saying, but I like what you're doing? Will you still point the finger at God and his glory? And let us see, some Christians fall because they cannot carry the burden of dishonor from their peers. Others fall because they cannot carry the burden of honor from their followers. I've been talking about that for the last five, ten minutes. And this is the issue, not just with teenagers, but adults. It is so hard for people to not like us that we say, I'd rather turn my back on God than the people that I can see. I'd rather have an unseen God dislike me than a seen community dislike me. There are churches, there are pastors who have literally changed the morality of Scripture so that they will fit nicely into the community, fit nicely into the culture and the morals of the culture. They will change the Bible so that the world will embrace them and say, welcome home. They cannot handle the disgrace of being unliked in the community. And so they bring blame upon God and his word because they hold up the Bible and say, come Sunday morning and listen to the truth of God's word, but not that book and not that chapter and not that section because those parts are wrong. And they're bringing blame on God, shame on God, because these people are throwing parts of God's word out because the world doesn't like it. And then there are those who are so high and mighty that, that everything they do, if you were to watch their church, I mean, it seems like they follow every mandate of Scripture. Like, there is no shame. There is no blame on this church. Everyone looks like they are almost an angel from earth, come down and, and living angelic, perfect lives. But if you were just to scratch the surface, you would see such a thick layer of pride <laughs> that whatever outward appearance they've got, Christ was pretty accurate when he stated you are look, silver shiny on the outside, dead men's bones on the inside. And again, those who can't handle the honor. Wow, you actually follow scripture. And it's like, yep, we do. We're the best in town. You want to you have a good experience? You want to have the best experience? You want to have the, some say, only worship experience? 
come here because we're the only ones worshiping God in this community. We're the only ones in this state that really love God. Like, it happens here. And now they're bringing blame on God through their pride because they've been honored, and they can't handle the weight of honor. <laughs> you, ever, you heard of bad losers, right, before, right? Anyone here? I'm not going to have you raise your hand. We've got some bad losers in this room, possibly. No one likes a bad loser. You know who everyone really hates, though? Bad winners, right? Oh, that's really hard, man. Like, you win, people over there crying, and they're upset. You're like, whatever, they lost. I don't care. And you're cheering with your teammates. It's really bad when you've lost, and you're, like, trying to hold it together, and the winning team's, like, you know, rubbing in your face, calling you names, laughing at you, taking videos of you, posting on social media, like, losers, you know. Oh, man, it's so hard to be around bad winners. That's what the Bible's saying here. When you have a win as a Christian, when you do what's right, when you are who's right, don't be a bad winner. Don't rub it in people's faces because now you become the loser. All right, examined by the world. Let's go to our next point, forgotten by the world. I see here in verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as chastened and not killed. All right, as unknown. And the Bible says, and yet known. Now, when it says unknown, yet known, I believe that we're talking about on this text, I'm pretty confident, it's just saying the world doesn't know us. We're lost to them, but God does see us. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And God is saying what the world sees isn't what I see. And what the world thinks is important isn't what I think is important. Letter A, the world seeks to leave a legacy. The disciple of Christ seeks to follow one. And that's a big difference right there. You know, the world, they want to leave a legacy behind. They want a monument behind. Uh, you know, I've been to uh, buildings before where um, they, want to, they want to raise up a building. They want to do fundraising. You can buy a brick. You can buy a, a, a red brick or a gold brick. And you can have your family name engraved on the brick so that when everyone comes to this building, they will forever see your family's name on a brick. I've seen that in churches. Now, I'm not going to say that it's unwise because it seems to get the job done. I'm not going to say it's necessarily the most biblical way of raising money. I'm not going to tell them that it's wrong or immoral, but it definitely plays to someone's pride of there's my legacy right there on that brick, forever attached to this building. Now, you know what? I believe this very strongly. It is human nature. It's the human condition to leave something behind, to when you come to the end of your life, to look back and say, I accomplished that. That's what we want as parents. We want to look back at our kids and say, my kids are successful. That's my accomplishment. If we're a business owner or, or, or high up on a level, uh, uh, a high tier of a company, we say, look what we've done with the company. Look how it's grown under our leadership. That's my legacy. You know what the funny thing about legacies is? Almost every one of them eventually dies anyway. I'm, I'm not saying the people, the legacy itself. Very few legacies actually make it in the history books. How many companies have thrived under men or women who said that was me, and we have no clue who these people are? After just 20 years, even the people working in that company have no clue who that person was. Folks, 10 years is a long time to a legacy. And if you're living for a legacy, you're going to be sorely displeased when you come to the end of your life. But Christians who follow Christ aren't living to leave a legacy. They're following a legacy. His name is Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that's not true for every Christian. There's a lot of Christians who are following a legacy, but his name ain't Christ. His name is pastor, bishop, elder, apostle, so-and-so. Oh, that's, my, that's a legacy I'm following. I'm going to follow this man. I'm going to follow this woman because they've got it together. And if I follow them, they'll take me places. They can't take you anywhere Christ can't take you. <laughs> and Christ can take you a whole lot further. 
If you've made the decision to follow a legacy, why would you follow any legacy but Christ? The best legacy. I mean, look, it's a hard thing to get to the point where you say, I'm not going to leave a legacy, I'm going to follow a legacy. Why would you make that extremely hard choice and then falter at the very end by choosing the wrong legacy? Choose Christ. His legacy is best. And ignore the human pull to leave a legacy and recognize at the end, it will not matter what you left behind. It will matter who you left behind. And I'm not looking to leave a legacy. I'm looking to draw others with me to the eternal legacy of Christ. That's what I want. Why am I the principal of a Christian school? I could care less about any legacy my name has attached to this school because I am a realist, and I know that someday when I retire or die, this school will forget me, and that's okay. I don't... I have no desire for Meriden Hills to change its name in some way to reflect me or my legacy. I do not care because I'm a realist and I understand when I die or retire within five years tops, this church will move on. I'm okay with that. That's how it should be. What I want to say is when I die and retire, who did I bring with me to the legacy? Jesus Christ. But listen. If you're looking to leave a legacy, you're probably bringing people to your legacy, and your legacy can't save them. Christ can. Forgotten by the world, that's okay. I don't need the world to see what I'm doing. I don't need the world to recognize me because I may be unknown to the world. I may be unknown to Christians. I may be unknown to other legacies in this world. I could care less because I am, verse 9, well known by Christ. And that's enough for me. Letter B. You will seek the attention of the one you love most. Verse 9. As dying and behold we live as chastened and not killed. You will seek the attention of the one you love most. As chastened and not killed. Now, <laughs> I believe that um, it is very true that for a young man or a young woman... If they do not love their parents, and I mean true, deep love, they're going to love someone, most likely. And a lot of teenagers go astray because they don't feel loved by their parents, and they don't feel like they love their parents. And so they end up loving their friends, are you ready for this, more than their family. Their family switches, and almost their family becomes not even a friendship, a bad friendship, like it's a friendship they don't want to be in. They go home, and they don't want to be around the family that has now become friends. They want to go to school and be with their friends who have become family. But that's not just teenagers. Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives experience the same thing. They want to go to work and literally rather be at work with their coworkers who have become their family. They will call themselves that. They will say, we're like a family here. And they, and they have to go back home with their family who become like a bad friendship. A marriage has become a bad friendship. Well, let me tell you the natural next step. When you have made a decision that this person is who you love most, you will seek their attention the most. You'll want them to give you the most attention. You'll give them the most attention. That's a dangerous thing when you replace family with friends and seek the attention of friends over your family, especially in a marriage. It's really dangerous for all Christians when you replace God with the world. When you choose to love the world more, 
you're going to naturally want the attention of the world more. You're going to want to know that they love you, care about you, approve of you. You want their attention. You want their appreciation. When you choose God, you don't care what the world has to say because you love God most. Look, I care a lot what my wife has to say about everything. I do because I love her. If I was to wear a certain pair of shoes and my wife said, if Amy said, Russ, those shoes are horrible. You should never wear them again. You probably, I'm going to probably throw them away. If she literally states up straight up, like, don't ever wear those, I probably won't. One of you say it, I'll just smile and say, well, I'm not wearing them for you. I literally have said that, not to adults because you guys are smart enough not to say that to me. I've had teenagers say that. Very recently, a teenager commented on my outfit. And I said, well, I'm not wearing it for you, so it's okay. And guess what? I wore it again. I don't care what that teenager thinks about what I wear. All right? I'm not going to Aeropostale to dress so the teenagers like me. You know why? I mean, I care about the teens. I love them, but not on the level that I love my spouse, my wife. And I don't need their attention. The problem is when a Christian treats the world like they should be treating God, you shouldn't be shocked when they need the attention of the world and can't function without it. You'll seek the attention of the one you love most. As dying and behold, we live as, teach, as chastened and not killed. Now, that word chastened has the idea of corrected. Corrected. And here in this verse, I believe it's the, the world that's doing the correcting. The world is trying to correct Christians and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Change this. You don't believe correctly. Change this. The world is trying to correct Christians, and yet Christians need to remember, hey, they're correcting us, but you know what? I'm still alive, and I'm not living for you, world. I'm living for God. You can chase me all you want. You can make fun of my clothes all you want. You can tell me you don't like the outfit all you want. You know what? I don't care. <laughs> a teenager can tell me they don't like my shoes. I don't care if they like my shoes. And a teenager can tell me they don't like my coat. I don't care if they like my coat. Just like they can say, I had a teenager the other day say, oh, that, that coat looks really nice on you. Okay, great. I didn't wear it more because they said that. Yeah, they can say what they want. They can chase me, try to correct me. They can approve of what they, what, what they think they like about me. It doesn't change what I do and who I am. You know what would? My wife. You know who will? My God. Why? Because I care about God. The world's going to chasten you. It will only affect you if you care. And then let her see. Some live for pleasure. Others have the pleasure of living. Some live for pleasure, and others have the pleasure of living. Look at verse 9 again. As dying, behold, we live. There are those who will live their life to gain more out of this life. And then there are those who will live their life to give more in this life. Which one are you? Are you looking to gain or are you looking to give? Are you looking to get or are you looking to impart on others? Because there are those who will say, if it will make me happy, I'm doing it. If it will make me happy, I'm going there. I want to be happy. The problem is the pursuit of happiness only always ends in broken relationships and discouragement every time. I'm not going to tell you that throughout that pursuit, there won't be moments of happiness. You get to the end of that game, you will have lost more than you gained. Because the pursuit of your happiness almost always requires you to push aside what others need. Well, that what you need doesn't make me happy. When you keep pushing aside the needs of others... Well, what about me? What about my dreams? What about uh, what I want in life? If you keep pushing others away, they'll stop coming. And in the end, you will still never attain the carrot on the stick. You'll never reach it, but you'll look back and no one else is around you because you kept pushing them away to pursue the carrot on the stick. 
to get the happiness the world promises, but they're liars. They can't give it to you. And then the world, as they're chasing the carrot on the stick, looks back and says, you bunch of idiots, not trying to get this carrot. Man, this carrot's all there is. What are you trying to do? Uh, Dying to the carrot, not living for the carrot. Why don't you want to pursue money and power and fame? Because the rest of us over here say, because we recognize none of those things matter. You know what matters? The legacy we're following and who we're taking to him, our relationships. And we're willing to die to that carrot on the stick, whatever that may be. We're willing to die to money. We're willing to die to power. We're willing to die to fame. We'll die to that so we can really live and live life as it's meant to be for the glory of God and to assist others in getting there. Those who live for pleasure will never find it and will have lost everything on the path. But those who live for God will have the pleasure of really living. The pleasure of being surrounded by people who you truly love and truly love you. The pleasure of knowing when you come to the end of that life, the legacy you lived for was worth it, and you brought some people with you. Forgotten by the world, and finally wounded by the world. Letter A. Correction is only effective when given by those in authority. And we're going to look back again now at verse 9, as chastened and not killed. Chastened and not killed. So I've already stated that you only care about what people say when you care about them. So the more you care about God, the more you care about what he says. The more you care about the world, the more you care about what they say. The same is also true for correction, that it's only effective when given by those in authority Who is the authority figure in your life? Because whoever you place as authority in your life, when they correct you, it's going to be more effective than some random stranger who corrects you. If you place God as your authority, the chastening of God will direct you. If you place the world as your authority, the world knows better, they're smart, whatever they say goes. When you place them as your authority, when they correct you, you will change. So in your head and in your heart, who is in charge. That's a conscious decision you must make. Who's in charge? For me, it's obvious. God's in charge. The world is not in charge of my life. The world is not in charge of my future or my children. The world is not in charge of this church. And the world can scream and they can correct. They can chasten. They can say whatever they want as loud as they want. I'm not changing for the world. God is my authority I will change for him. Do you think the world's going to like that? Do you think they're going to appreciate the unchanging, unmoving Christian? Of course not. And with that will come pain. And I see in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Emotional pain is a part of life. Healing is a part of the Christian life. Look, let me tell you something. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you'll never be hurting. Just because you're living for God doesn't mean you'll ever never be in pain. Sorrow is something that Christians who love God most often experience the most. Imagine that. Wait a second. I thought if you were closer to God, you'd be happier. No. Who told you that? Look at Christ. He sorrowed quite often. He was God. Jesus Christ in the flesh. God in sorrow. Sorrowing because the world had turned their backs on him. 
Sorrowing because the disciples themselves didn't seem to get the obvious truths that he was preaching. Sorrowing because he was going to take the sin of the world on his shoulders to the cross. When God sorrows, you better believe his people are going to sorrow. Sorrow is emotional pain. Sorrow, the, the world calls it mental health. That's their definition for it. That's the word they use, mental health. It's a real thing. The Bible calls it sorrow. We have it. Just because you have sorrow doesn't mean you've ran from God. doesn't mean God has forgotten you. In fact, the truth is this. The closer you are to God, the easier it is to see through God's eyes. And let me tell you, seeing through God's eyes can be a scary thing. Because when you see the world through God's eyes, it's sad. When you see your family through God's eyes, it's sad. And you know what's really sad? Seeing yourself through God's eyes. That's really sad. The closer you are to God, it is more likely the more sorrow that you will experience because you see the pain that people are inflicting on themselves. But here's the great thing about walking close to God. We'll see and we'll sorrow, but it doesn't have to end there. God says, I've got healing for you. In fact, God said, I'm going to send the great healer, the Holy Spirit, knowing that we would sorrow, knowing we would be in pain, knowing we would hurt. God said, I will send the healer. I will send the comforter. And in this text, we're told that even though we sorrow, emotional pain, we will rejoice. Rejoicing does not mean an elimination of sorrow. Rejoicing means a focus through the sorrow. Rejoicing means I prioritize the glory of God over the sorrows of this life. I recognize that where I'm going is better than where I've been and where I am. And although I'm sad now, and although I'm sorrowful, and although I'm discouraged, my eyes are ahead and up on Christ and eternity. And I can rejoice not because I'm without sorrow. I can rejoice because this sorrow won't follow me into eternity. I can rejoice because this sorrow doesn't have to change and doesn't have to affect my relationship with God. God will be there for me in sorrow and through sorrow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff They comfort me. We can rejoice through sorrow. And let her see, and we're done. The follower of Christ does not seek to take, but rather to give. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 10. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Do you see that in the middle of verse 10? As poor, it doesn't say yet being rich. It doesn't say that you are poor, but rich in Christ. I think the next part clarifies that. I think it says having nothing, possessing all things. Although we have nothing on this earth, God has given much spiritual blessings. The middle part of verse 10, though, says as poor yet making rich, meaning a follower of Christ is blameless when they don't live for the riches in this life, but they live to impart eternal riches by helping others see the legacy of Christ. They live for eternity. And when they live for eternity... Not only do they possess all things, the end of verse 10, but they help others gain that same possession, and they essentially help others become rich spiritually because they've chosen God over this world. So how about it, Christian? Are you blameless? 
Are you blameless in the way that the world sees you? I do not mean, does the world like you? I do not mean, does the world agree with you? I mean, when the world sees you, do they see a Christian who can handle honor and dishonor? When they attack you, do you return with grace? I mean, does the world see a Christian who not only preaches the truth, but walks the truth? I mean, when the world claims we hate, does that claim stick? Or do we show love at all times? I mean, are we blameless by not only how we live, but who we live for? The legacy of Christ, not ourselves. Let's pray.